0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. My guest today is Nancy-Ann DeParle, a health care policy expert, staffer and leader at the state and federal levels. I got to work with Nancy-Ann when she served in the role she is probably best known for, that of, quote, healthcare czar for President Obama in 2009 and 2010. Nancy Ann started her staffer career in Tennessee, working for the Tennessee Department of Human Services. From there, she served in roles at the White House Office of Management and Budget, OMB. And in 1997, she was tapped by President Clinton to lead the agency then known as the Healthcare Financing Administration and has since been renamed and today is called the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. It sits within the Department of Health and Human Services. As I mentioned, I got to know Nancy Ann when she was working in the Obama White House. And in that role, she was the person through whom all healthcare related matters ran. And she is someone who deserves an enormous amount of credit for crafting the policy and leading the effort that became President Obama's signature legislative accomplishment, the Affordable Care Act. After enactment of the ACA, Nancy Ann stayed at the White House for two more years as deputy chief of staff for policy. She left that role in 2013, and since that time, has held leadership positions and advisory roles with several healthcare companies. I am so pleased to be able to talk to my friend and former colleague. She and I teamed up many times in search of votes on Capitol Hill, and we talk about some of that experience and its relevance to the Biden administration and today's Congress. I hope you enjoy our conversation. We recorded this episode on Friday, March 26th. Nancy Ann DeParle, welcome to Staffer.
1: Thank you. I'm glad to be here.
0: It is wonderful uh, to be talking with you today. I like to start these conversations uh, by learning a little bit about where people grew up and how they grew up. And I I know uh, from a little bit of background research, you were born in Ohio, but grew up in Tennessee. Tell me about, you know, uh, your childhood and about your family.
1: I'm, I'm smiling because you said a little bit of background research. That would be hours that we spent traipsing the halls
0: of uh, house (laughs)
1: office buildings and the Capitol. That too. Um, So we learned a little bit about each other. And and also you, you heard me in meetings with members, um, try to try to figure out ways to relate and talk about my childhood. So, yeah, I grew up in a little town called Rockwood, Tennessee, which is a town of about 4,000 was then and is now about, about 4,000 people, um, in, you know, in Appalachia in, in East Tennessee. Um, I have to be you're not from Tennessee Tennessee's a very long state so if you say East Tennessee some people think you mean a town three hours away from there but it's uh it's definitely in um, East Tennessee kind of near Knoxville and um yeah I grew up there and then I went to the University of Tennessee which is the the big state university in Knoxville
0: yeah um tell me about your parents if you would
1: well, uh, my parents were um, were different for sure. My mom grew up in the same town I grew up in, Rockwood. Um, went away to uh, Knoxville and got a nursing uh, diploma at a at a school there, a hospital, Fort Sanders, and then became an army nurse. And I'm I'm proud to say she was one of the first army nurses in World War II in wow. uh, that first group of of nurses that they recruited from around the country. So she served her country and then came back and was working in Knoxville and met my father who was, uh, had come here as a student uh, from Shanghai, had gone to engineering school uh, at Zhongdao university in China, had uh, met a uh, Catholic priest. He was Catholic and met a Catholic priest who helped him get into uh, the U.S. And, you know, people, joke about someone being on the last boat from China, but he he literally almost was one of the last, uh, in the last group of, large group of immigrants who came over um, in the 40s. So um, wow. they met and uh, uh, got married, and uh, which, which wasn't easy to do back then, I think. Um, and it's sort of sad, Jim, I don't know much about my history from that perspective, because my parents moved then to Cleveland, Ohio, where they had my older brother and me. My father was at um, Case Western then, or it might have even been Case or Western, because I don't remember when the two of them came together, Um, uh, teaching engineering. And then they moved to Auburn, Alabama, and he was at Auburn University. And then my parents split up, and my mom moved back with the three children uh, to Rockwood, Tennessee, where her mother was. Um, And her, her mother had raised three children on her own, and my mother did the same thing so wow. in this little town um so then i sort of lost touch with my father and really didn't see him again for for you know many years um and uh so we didn't we didn't really have a relationship
0: yeah wow um was you know was politics or public policy discussed you know uh growing up or was that something you discovered later when you went to school
1: i don't remember a time when I wasn't interested in politics. And I don't really know where that came from. My family wasn't involved in politics. And in fact, I first started uh, doing things about it in um, junior high and high school. And my mom was working as a as a secretary in the Tennessee Department of Conservation. But in a little, tiny little office they had, they had a forestry division. that had a little office uh, in Midway, Tennessee, which was a little even smaller town than the one I grew up in and that's where my mom was the secretary and I can remember in high school um, I was involved in student government and was president of student council and all that but in high school um, I was um, I worked uh, after school at a little um, uh, a drugstore called the Live and Let Live which I didn't think there was anything strange about that until it was on my resume in college and it said live and let live drugstore and people laughed but that was the name of the drugstore yeah. Not not a bad uh, not a bad uh, credo to live by, but in any event, um, there was another farm. Phar- there was a pharmacist at the competing pharmacy who was very involved in Democratic politics, and uh, there was a, a governor's race coming up. This was in the the seventies, and um, uh, he asked me if I wanted. We talked about it, and I was excited about the candidate. He Asked me if I wanted to be involved in the campaign, and being involved in the campaign for me back then meant helping him put together a a little rally in our town and being, uh, wearing a hat and being a Wiseman gal is what they called it. His name was Tom Wiseman. He ran for governor and I was just hooked. I was really interested in it. And my mom got worried because she was a state employee and it's hard for us to conceive of this. You and I worked in the federal government and it's hard to conceive of of this, but she was worried that she could lose her job. Mm -hmm. If I was politically active for, um, not her, the governor who was running the state government, yeah. and that it was known. Um, so, you know, that was high school. And then when I got to college is when I really got involved. Uh, one of the first things I did was um, get involved in uh, postcard uh, student voter registration so that students could vote on campus. And we set up tables and uh, during registration. The University of Tennessee back when I went there was – 35,000 undergrads. It was, it was bigger than it is now. And, um, it was fun. We, we registered a bunch of students and the Republican party in, in Knox County, um, sued us and tried to have the ballots thrown out. So my first experience as a litigator was, you know, at the age of 17, going down to the, uh, Knox County election commission and challenging this, uh, the Republican state senator who tried to have our, uh, ballots uh disqualified well, good all for the you. same it's just yeah. it's all the same stuff that's going on now well this yes. signature doesn't look like that signature and okay he voted in murray county he registered to vote in murray county but now you're saying he wants to vote in knoxville and we need to talk to him I mean, it was all the same the yep. same stuff but it was uh, for 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 students
0: right Well, so you went uh, to the University of Tennessee for undergrad. Uh, You went to Harvard Law School. I think during Harvard Law School, you got a Rhodes Scholarship, studied at Oxford, came back and finished law school, then returned to Tennessee, worked in private practice. And after that, you were asked to become the commissioner of the Tennessee Department of Health. Tell me how that transition went from working in law to Running a state agency of such critical importance.
1: Well, um, I skipped some of my college political activities. So one of the things I did, I was the student body president at the University of Tennessee, and one of our activities was was getting in someone's old station wagon and hauling over to Nashville, three hours away, to lobby the state legislature. Ah, so okay. that's how I got you. You thought you taught me how to oh no to lobby, but. That's where I, I learned how to lobby. I didn't.
0: So, uh, we're going to talk about that. You, I, I, I knew from our first meeting with, with elected officials, you were really good at this. <laughs> and I, was, well, I so, was learning from you. So
1: Back then, we would lobby the state legislature on things that mattered to students because they controlled our fate with respect to tuition, with respect to student activities, you know, things we could do on campus or not do on campus, like alcohol on campus. So um, through that, I met the Speaker of the House, Ned McWhorter. And he was Speaker of the House for you know decades and then decided pretty late in his career that he wanted to run for governor. And um, so after he was elected, he called me up. i had worked in his campaign some, but I was practicing law and traveling and doing depositions. I wasn't on the campaign staff. Um, and he told me, we talked about different positions. And I thought he's probably thinking about general counsel or something in the Business law area because that's the kind of law I'd done litigation, and he said, "Oh no, no, I want you to be the commissioner of human services. That is one that deals with um, a lot of problems. It's the the largest department in the government. uh, Deals with, you know, poverty, Um, and there's a lot going on in Washington around." potentially building up for welfare reform. And I want you to go to Washington. I don't like going to Washington myself. He said, I want you to go to Washington and throw your weight around, Um, (laughs) which was sort of funny. I was 30 years, I guess I was just turned 30 at the time. And so the idea of throwing my weight around was kind of amusing. But anyway, it couldn't have been better experience for me because I learned about passing bills. I had the first bill that our administration passed uh, was one where we we needed to increase our child support standards to meet a federal standard in order to keep receiving federal money. And I remember um, I didn't know what to do. Like I I'd, I'd talked to all the members, both sides, about what we were doing. And it came time to vote. And the, the uh, Speaker of the House goes over to me, goes, you got to tell us what to do. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, you got to go up to the gallery and you've got to give us the thumbs up so that wow. people will look up there and
0: incredible
1: it didn't come naturally to me jim at all but i went up to the gallery they looked up i said yes and they did it
0: oh that's not everybody incredible.
1: i did, i did, it wasn't unanimous but uh so anyway that sort of constant communication uh ex- if explaining to people what you're trying to do and why and tennessee was at that point um very bipartisan or so it felt to me. And so it was Democrats, Republicans, everybody, you know, Mm -hmm. it was a great, a great training ground for me.
0: Well, and and you also were running an agency of, I think, more than 6,000 employees. That must have been a real change in uh, slash opportunity in leadership, right? I mean, you'd been a leader at many phases of your life, but that's a big agency to be running. It's what, a big you- agency,
1: and I was far too young to be doing it, let's be honest. I, I looked at the governor a couple of years into it and said, what were you thinking? But I actually think he was
0: right. uh,
1: I kind of know what he was thinking. One thing is that he said, I want to bring a new generation into state government. And he did that. I wasn't the only young person. But secondly, um, he said to me when he interviewed me, now, Washington has cut back our money our block grant money for that funds the department of human services which dealt with things like you know foster care child welfare elderly abuse uh it's the welfare payments food stamps so he said i need you to do a riff and i remember him saying to me i said well how big governor i had the sense to ask that and he said around 10% so i did the math you know 6000 employees 10% 600 and i I'm embarrassed to say this, but I I thought, no problemo. Mm. And, of course, that's a massive riff to do. And after it was over with, I decided nothing would ever scare me again. Because you mentioned my being raised by a single mom whose job was working for state government. So every time I looked at those plans about the reductions in force – I thought about my mom raising three kids on her own and what would have happened to her had she lost her job. Yeah. And so in the end, no one actually lost their job. We were able to manage it over a period of months where um, because of the way the civil service system works, there was uh, people could move around. So there'd be an empty slot somewhere else if you, if you eliminated their slot they could move to another one and we were able to make it work by just sort of smoothing that out. But I got in my car and drove to all 95 counties during that year, um, sat down with, with the team, talked to them about what we were doing, why Um, it was rough. It was definitely rough. Had a lot of pressure from the legislature. There's a particular man. There must be a statute of limitations on this kind of thing. There's a man who was the chair of our uh, ways and means committee for the house who called me up and said, I don't want you to touch any of my people.
0: (laughs) Right. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Which of course I said, sir, we're doing this by the books. We're not, I'm not carving out certain people who, who don't get affected, but it Mm -hmm. was, you know, he, it was not, it was not easy.
0: Yeah. You know, um, the comment about the governor saying, Hey, I want to bring in a new generation of leaders. When you think about it and like when, when you talk about your background and we're going to uh, talk about it a bit more, it was so perfectly suited for you to meet the moment, you know, once you began working for President Obama. Um, and it's a good thing, right, that you had these experiences so early in life. The, good, the ups of learning to pass legislation and the downs of having to go through that riff um, – because we certainly had both, which we're going to talk about uh, in a couple of minutes. Um, But after that experience, um, you worked at OMB for a time, and then in 1997, you were tapped by President Clinton to serve as administrator of what was then known as the Healthcare Financing Administration. Today is called the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS. This is one of the most important um, agencies within – the federal government. I mean, it touches people's lives uh, daily, but not many people know about it. So can you describe what CMS does?
1: Yeah. So CMS is the uh, the federal agency that's in charge of administering Medicare, Medicaid, the state children's health insurance program, CHIP, and now the Affordable Care Act, um, the marketplaces and the insurance regulations and, and the the subsidies and, and all that that go with the Affordable Care Act. Um, so it is, uh, when I was running it, uh, you know, it was probably 500 billion in spending. Now it's probably close to a trillion spending every year. I don't, I haven't looked at the latest numbers, but so for everyone who is a Medicare, um, uh, beneficiary or uses Medicare, that's the agency that, uh, you know, administers it, Make sure that you get your claims paid, make sure you get your Medicare Advantage plan if that's what you're doing. And you're right though, no one's ever heard of it. There's this funny story that people tell about um, a senior's telling her member of Congress, keep your hands off my Medicare. Um, And she had no idea where Medicare was housed in the government. She had no idea really whether he had any role with it, just knew that she depended on it. Um, so you're right. CMS, HICFA, as it used to be called, is an agency that has a lot of clout and a lot of responsibility, but a lot of people haven't heard of it either.
0: Yeah. Did, did running a state agency, did you find that to be a really helpful perspective in running CMS? Because there's a, it, it seems anyway, there's both a cooperative relationship between state you know, health agencies and, and CMS, but also there are some tensions there. Where they want waivers and exceptions to things that CMS is trying to apply.
1: Right. Well, during the time I was there, remember that I worked for a former governor, uh, Bill Clinton. And so we were definitely open for business working with states on Medicaid waivers like Tennessee. The first waiver, in fact, the first 1115 waiver that was given, uh, it was before I got there, it was in the early days of the Clinton administration, but was to the governor that I worked for to expand coverage in Tennessee to use the Medicaid dollars to cover more people. And it was actually that the the kernel of that is what ended up becoming the Massachusetts program. They took Ah. the same idea using Medicaid funding to cover more people, got a waiver to do it. That's how they created the Massachusetts program. And as you know, both of those programs were part of what we looked at in um, forming the foundation for the Affordable Care Act. So- Yes, it was great training on a number of grounds and including actually the one, the area where you and I worked the most closely, which is when I was running the Tennessee Department of Human Services, I spent half of my time out on the road in county offices, visiting with uh, legislators in their homes, doing town hall meetings with them, learning more about them and their families and, you know, not assuming that we in Nashville knew what they needed, and so I took that that same perspective um, with me to working in the White House and to working at CMS.
0: Yeah, um, you know, a- a- as you said, you and I spent a-, a good amount of time walking the halls and meeting with members. And what my my window into that was, I know, limited compared to how much time you spent with some of my colleagues. You were over on the Senate side. I mean. You, the fact that you drove to all ninety-five counties of Tennessee doesn't surprise me at all. Because it wouldn't surprise me if you had visited all five hundred thirty-five uh, congressional offices too. It's um, a long
1: list. Our friend Lauren Aronson has the list. It was a <laughs> yes. long list. But you and I spent a lot of time together we because did. we we had a we had a mission.
0: We did. We had a mission. You were fantastic. And as I've said on previous shows, in the office of legislative affairs our job was to get the votes out of congress and we had a lot of things at our disposal uh, you know we could ask cabinet secretaries to make phone calls you know we we could use the resources of the white house to the fullest extent possible and you were it wasn't a secret weapon but you were one of the most persuasive if not the most persuasive person that i ever brought to the hill um because you, you say really, that to everyone. <laughs> uh, nope, you really listened to people so carefully. You knew your stuff inside and out. Um, it was it was terrific, and and because you you know knew the bill better than anybody, um, you know you could gently correct where they had a misperception, and also see and know where there w- were opportunities for compromise or some flex, you know, on our side and theirs. So to that point, Thank by the you. way, you're welcome. Um, you know, a lot has been written about that that process uh, from early 2009 till it's signing into law in 2010. Um, were there times that you looked, you know, you got some news or or something broken? You thought this is it. We're dead. This isn't just this isn't going to make it, you know, across the line.
1: Uh Yes, there were many times when I thought we're not going to make it. But you know, there were just as many times where I thought, "Wow, um, I was just in awe of a lot of our um, of our leaders during that time period, Jim. And again, I think my perspective from Tennessee you know, informed this. I really came into this job um, thinking that we would be able to do exactly what the President wanted to do, which was to forge a bipartisan you know piece of legislation that would get everyone covered bring the bring the rate of health care cost growth down, reform the insurance markets there seemed to be um, bipartisan will to do that and you and I worked in particular I don't actually know what your assignment was in terms of members you know who was on your your list but I, but you know if there was a plan to not have Republicans on uh, supporting this effort, um, we didn't get the memo. I, you know, because I I hear coverage of it now. I've heard something recently where a, a, a someone on television was saying, well, we could just do what the Democrats did at the Affordable Care Act and just ram it through, uh, you know, with only Democrats. Well, that isn't how I remember what happened, and I'm sure it's not what you remember. That is not uh, what We happened. spent right. hours and hours and hours working with Republican members, and as our former colleague Rahm Emanuel likes to say, uh, even though in the end there weren't many Republican votes for it, there were Republican ideas for sure, and they were good ideas. Um, so
0: That's absolutely right. Um You know, some would say and some do say, looking back, that we pursued Republican votes, particularly in the Senate, for too long. Do you think we did?
1: You know, um, that August of 2009, sitting there in my little windowless room in the basement of the West Wing, um, that had a a special little machine that I've never seen before or since. I had a mosquito problem down there. (laughs) <laughs> and so they had a machine that zapped mosquitoes in my office, below the Oval <laughs> Office. Uh, so during that August, as you, since it was a recess, I was spending all my time in there, not on the hill, walking around as we usually did. And I started to get really nervous because things had seemed to be moving well in the house and it just seemed to be a little stuck. And I turned on the television and started seeing people like Senator... Chuck Grassley, who had been someone I'd spent hours with and someone that um, Chairman Baucus on the finance committee had spent hundreds of hours with on this topic over the years preceding um, 2009. They were working on this white paper together about how do, we, how do we reform healthcare? And what we were doing then was very close to that. And I hear him out there in Iowa saying he thinks there maybe there are death panels and death panels in this. And that's when I knew, wow, this, this is becoming so partisan. And so, yes, my instinct then was we got to move faster. Now, having said that, when people ask me, is there one thing that you would have changed about the Affordable Care Act? And of course the legislation wasn't perfect by any means, but, but if it's comes down to the one thing, the one thing I would change is having had Republican support.
0: Yeah. Well, so. And
1: and we did everything we could to get right. that. I we know did, that. I we, did. You did. The president did. Phil Shalero, our, our leader, did. So.
0: Yeah. So there is lost to history, but not to you and me, is the fact that there was one Republican vote for the bill when it moved through the House the first time. So the House passed a bill the Senate passed a bill. They were supposed to be reconciled. We we lost our 60 vote threshold. So that reconciliation process couldn't happen. Ultimately, the House had to pass the version of the bill that the Senate passed. But on that first a pathway through the House, a Republican voted yes, making our vote bipartisan. You were essential to that. Can you talk about our experience together with Congressman Joseph Gao uh, of Louisiana, former congressman?
1: Well, there's no I in team, let me just say. We were we were team Gao, for sure. That's right. Um, and and uh, how that happened was uh, you approached me. I don't know wh- where we were. Maybe we were doing some other visits on the Hill. And you said, would you be willing to come up on a Monday night to meet with Congressman Gao? And members typically came in on Mondays. and and it seemed like back then they were having a lot of caucuses of each party, yes. which, by the way, I'm not sure how great that is because they all their time seems to be spent in in those intra-party um, meetings. But you said he had been willing to meet with us, and as as you mentioned, he represented a very poor, um, high Medicaid concentration, high uninsured concentration um, district in in New Orleans, and. Uh, and so yes we I said, of course, so we go up there. I want to say it was like a seven o'clock on a monday um he he couldn't have been nicer or more more gracious we We talked about our backgrounds, we talked about what he was concerned about in New Orleans, um, he had good questions about the policy, yeah about um the individual mandate that everyone have insurance. How, you know how does that work, and would people be penalized? And um, anyway, it was it was a good conversation. Uh, and then he invited us to come back, and I think we went I don't know a half dozen times probably. Yeah, that's right. And so um, I sort of learned to count votes from that experience because um, my gut told me he was going to vote for the bill. Yeah. And I'll never forget, it actually gives me goosebumps to hear you describe that time, but I'll never forget. And he, he told us, this is really tough for me. The, the caucus doesn't know I'm meeting with you. Yep. The leadership doesn't know, and they're not going to be happy.
0: That's right. You know, when, uh, when that vote on the House was taken, it was late at night, and uh, it was very narrow. Um, and we, we got Congressman Joseph Gow, We said, And I knew there were there were a handful of members who I needed to go visit because they had really taken a risk. And, you know, because it was so late at night, you know, I'm knocking on these doors. Most of the staff have gone home. And in one office, I found a frontline Democrat whose staff actually had stuck around. But he cast the vote knowing that it was election ending for him and he and his staff were kind of raising a toast uh, you know to to doing the right thing for their constituents and the country in his view, you know, despite the the political consequences that may follow and when I was stopped at uh, Carmen Gow's office, I knocked on the door and he he opened it he actually was wearing his pajamas. he was one of these members who's, who who mm-hmm. stayed in his office, and he couldn't have been more gracious um And he was so appreciative of the time that you and I had given him to talk about every concern. And he said, I feel very good. I feel, you know, he had an inner calm sort of a peace within him that, you know, and as you may remember, he, I think he had spent some time um, becoming a Jesuit. Mm -hmm. So he had a real, you know, religious um, moral compass and as a result, I think some of the uh, more earthly political consequences weren't as, you know, as scary to him as maybe they are for some other members. But he couldn't have gotten there without all the conversations that you had with him. I couldn't have, I certainly well, could not have gotten the, him there by myself
1: he uh, that story is one of many. And I think of people like Barron Hill and others that we worked with. Uh, that's what I mean when I say some people are cynical about Congress. I'm really not. Because I saw uh, what people did, that people did um, reach within themselves and say, "This could be the end of my career, but I think it's the right thing to do. I think it moves our country forward. And I must I remember two things about that evening. I did not visit um, people in their offices as you did, but I was happened to be outside the House chamber at just the right location where those swinging doors opened suddenly after the vote. And um, the leader, Boehner, came marching out. And there were reporters all around him saying, what about Joe Gow? What about Joe Gao? Did you know he was going to vote for him? No, I didn't. (laughs) He grabs his cigarette. And I remember thinking, I did. Um, uh, I knew he was going to do it. (laughs) But, you know, how unpleasant it probably was for for poor Congressman Gao after that to be the one person in his caucus. The other thing I remember about that night is your colleague and mine, Dan Turton grabbing me by the arm walking me through the capitol and pointing over toward the senate and saying okay now you got to go over there and get the votes right so yeah and then months later we did
0: yep well and and speaking of the senate there is certainly a corollary to what we were talking about with you know, trying to win Republican support today. The Biden administration is exactly, you know, facing this exactly. They don't have 59 or 60 votes. They have 50, 50. exactly, you know, plus the vice president. Um, but they desperately want Republican support. The first member meeting the president had was with Republicans. Um, what advice would you give uh, our old colleague, Louisa Terrell, who is running legislative affairs there now, but all of the White House and. Uh, and the president and vice president in trying to, you know, get what we tried for, but was just out of our grasp.
1: Um, I think when I, I'm smiling thinking of Louisa, because like you, and frankly, like the whole legislative team that uh, Phil Shaliro put together, um, Louisa's, answer when you say, no, I don't think I can be for that is, well, which part of it is the no? Is it a hard no? Or is it, are there parts of this that you can support? She was always looking for an opening, an angle, and just by being uh, determined and, and optimistic and all of those things, she could find a way to get people there. Yep. So, I'm assuming that's the same Louisa who's who's leading uh, President Biden's effort on the Hill, and that's what you have to do. And by the way, you're overstating it a bit because uh, when people use these these comparisons, they'll say, "Well, look at what LBJ was able to do." Well, he had a you know a totally veto-proof, filibuster-proof, everything majority uh, for a period of time. Um, we had. At our height, fifty-eight. If you really mm. think about it, because we had two independents, we had that's right, that's right. We yep. we had Bernie Sanders, and and so they have independents now too. They have Sanders, and they have um, um, Angus King, yep, who vote with them. But none of this is guaranteed. You know, I learned this from Pete Rouse. Uh, Pete Rouse told me because I'd never passed a bill before, and. I, uh, How do you do this? And he said, every senator has a brand. Mm -hmm. It's true of every member, too, probably. And you have to figure out what is their brand and then figure out how what you're trying to sell or get them to do can fit within their brand. So if they're a state's rights person, you know, if they're a, a former governor who believes states should be the ones to make these decisions, you have to figure out can your legislation still work within those constraints. And if it can't, you're going to have a problem. You have, that's how, what you have to do to sell it. So I assume that's what um, President Biden and Louisa and the whole team are doing.
0: That's right. Well, and I also I want to be careful not to overstate the responsibility being only on them because it's not, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the senators themselves, our Republican colleagues, they need to want to be to yes also. And if everyone wants to be, you know, a get to yes, okay, then we're in. You know, then we're working together on a hard problem, but we're not working against each other. You know, trying to hold up every turn and twist as a political opportunity.
1: Well said. That's it's not all on on them to persuade. If you think that our country needs to rebuild its crumbling bridges and rebuild our infrastructure, and good lord, if this pandemic um, showed us anything, it's, it's that we have to be prepared. Um, then you want to work with together with president Biden and his team on an infrastructure bill. That's right. And yes, it's going to be hard. And yes, you might say, I don't see how we spend more than 300 billion. And they say, no, it's a couple of trillion. So there's a big, a that's big right. gap to be bridged, but you can bridge it. That's why that's what brought you to Congress.
0: That's right. Well, um, I want to take a moment, um, Uh, to recognize that the Affordable Care Act just passed its 11th birthday. And I'm now going to brag on it and by proxy you by reading out some facts uh, that uh, are true of the law today. More than 20 million Americans have health coverage today that did not have it before the Affordable Care Act. And just last month, the month of February, an additional 200,000 people registered for coverage 39 states have chosen to expand Medicaid eligibility and several more are considering doing so. As a result of the increased coverage, people are getting more health care, more primary care, specialty care services, prescription drug access, especially lower-income Americans. Out-of-pocket costs among people with insurance have decreased. Premiums for insurance plans obtained through the marketplace are lower than anticipated when we were uh, uh, debating the bill. The overall rate of growth in the health in healthcare writ large has been reduced. So bending the cost curve, which we wanted to do, it is bending. Insurance quality is better than before. So things like pre-existing conditions uh, uh, can't be discriminated against. People can stay on uh, their parents' health insurance until age 25. All of this has been done at substantially lower cost to the government than initially projected. So it cost less than than projected. And by the way, it was paid for. And there are no death panels. And according to survey research that uh, Global Strategy Group has done for our client navigator, some of the r- most recent numbers, I looked at, it is uh, viewed favorably by 60% of the, of the public unfavorably by only 30%. That is a two to one margin that we would have killed to have at the time. I just wanted the record to show all of those things because every single point that, that I read out was debated. We were told we were going to be wrong. We we weren't wrong. The
1: job loss was going to be terrible. That's, I remember that's when right. the Senate passed it, a senator who's no longer there was almost in tears on the Senate floor saying the jobs, the the jobs are going to be on. As you, if you'll recall, we looked at it every single month. One of our colleagues in legislative affairs would, would post something every single month about the job creation numbers as we were, as we were working out of the recession. It's been a, it's been a, it's been a job creator, not a, not a source of job loss for sure. And one thing that you didn't list, but I think is really important to sort of take in is, People before the Affordable Care Act uh, was passed, a lot of people in the middle class, the upper class, you know, they thought they had a right to health insurance because they had always been fortunate enough to work at a job at a large corporation that provided it. But There really wasn't any right to anything. If they had lost their job um, and had been on the individual market with, with other of our American friends and family... They would have seen that they could be forced to pay as much as twenty times more if they were a woman, depending on what state you were in. They could be uh, coverage could be declined because of a pre-existing condition that you know, a hundred million people have a pre-existing condition. So those things are a thing of the past now. Our children will not even understand what that means. Uh, right. And we do have a health security that we didn't have before, and that's not in the numbers exactly, but it's it's an important thing to reflect on
0: you're absolutely right and um, I have to say of all the people I, I worked with there are a handful that um, de- deserve elevated status for making that law happen and you are at the top of that list um, the informally your title was healthcare cares are and that meant all the policy all the communications all the legislative wrangling all of the coalition you know building Um you were at the center of that enormous coordinated storm, and it couldn't have happened without you. Your, you, you know, your life, your professional arc was built for that moment, and um, it, I thoroughly enjoyed working with you. But as a citizen, I, I just appreciate it immensely uh, because the country is different and better for it and for you.
1: Well, I treasured working with you and and the entire team. You know, what what an incredible experience it was to have everyone, you know, and it was it started at the top to have the president of the United States focused on let's use this opportunity to to really accomplish something big for the American people. And as you know, by the end, a lot of the ideas had been watered down or changed and you had to look at at this piece of legislation and you know, he looked at it and said, "Yes, it, it does achieve enough of the ambitions that that I and the speaker and the leader of the Senate, Harry Reid, had for the American people. It's a foundation. Let's go forward."
0: That's and- right. That's absolutely right. Um, I want to uh, change to a topic. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about, um, and that is also a real challenge for the country right now, and that is the environment that is being faced by Asian-Americans today. Um, It's not new, uh, but the last year of COVID and how some demagogues have seized on the opportunity, Donald Trump certainly, but he's not alone, um, to use phrases like China virus and Kung flu to just add poison uh, to... The atmosphere of our country, and it is being born by Asian Americans. And I wanted to ask you, how are you and your family at this time, and what do our, you know, leaders need to be saying at this time?
1: Yeah, well, it's it's been hard to watch for sure. Um, You know, as I said, I grew up in a very small town, and we were the only Asian people there. Um my mom was Caucasian. My dad was the Chinese part of my identity. And he wasn't there. Um, So in some ways it was a very um uh warm enveloping environment because my mom had grown up there, my grandmother had grown up there. Um they knew everyone. My uncle was a was a prominent lawyer in the little town. But there were times when when I experienced it. I can remember one day standing behind the counter at the Live and Let Live drugstore where I scooped ice cream after school. And there were some people crowded around the front, like five or six people, pointing in the store. And so I was looking around, is there a new display here, some new cologne or something? And then I realized, oh, they're pointing at me. Wow. Um, Wow. You know, they had never seen an Asian person, I guess. during This was also during um, the end of the Vietnam War. And there was a time when um, we would drive to school in the mornings. We rode the bus to school. And my mom actually started driving us for a a period of time. Because when we would drive up to the school, there were a group of uh, boys who would yell, Ho, ho, Ho Chi Minh. My last name was Minh then. um, And Ho Chi Minh being the the uh, Vietnamese leader, North Vietnamese leader. So, uh, you know, kids can be insensitive. People can be insensitive. Uh, it's, it's very hard to see now this coming out. I don't know where exactly it's coming from. You know, it's happening in my neighborhood in Maryland. Uh, you know, a little spat over a parking spot became a uh, yelling at someone over being Asian. Mhm. So, um uh, I think the more people that speak out about it the better. The more of our leaders, Governor Hogan just spoke out about this. His wife is Korean American. Um, Mitch McConnell, the leader and uh former majority leader, minority leader in the Senate has spoken out. His wife is Chinese American. Yeah. So, people need to need to speak out about it.
0: Yeah. They do. It uh it, it's urgent. Um and you know just to your your point about um, a, any moment can sort of flare up into this racialized incident it's it's there, right like it, it's sort that's proof that it is it does permeate you know society that a a otherwise uh, you know inconsequential dispute over a parking spot becomes a, a a moment where one person tells another i'm I'm above you." Right. I'm degrading you with this racialized. Uh,
1: You're degraded because you're Asian. Yes.
0: Yes. Um, Well, I'm very much thinking of you and your family at this time. Um, There are a couple of questions I do like to ask my guests uh, that are recurring segments. We have talked a lot about staff and our work as staffers together. I have this idea that I'd like to build a monument to staffers on the National Mall and inside are bronze busts of all the of the top staffers in history. Is there someone or some people who you would nominate to be in the Staffer Hall of Fame?
1: Well, definitely. Um, one would be Phil Shaliro. Yes. Who you and I both worked with and revere. And I've yes. learned a lot working with Phil. But he's Phil the head of has the Legislative this. Affairs. Yeah, he's a brilliant strategist um the most humble guy you can find it was amusing when um then when former secretary clinton testified uh when she was running for president i guess uh uh in 2016 uh she was called up to testify in front of the house and phil did some of the work helping her to prepare and there was a photo in the new york times of the people her staff and, it, and this is after Phil had been assistant to the president, for, head of the Office of Legislative Affairs, for a very successful uh, president, Barack Obama, who got probably second only to LBJ in the number of bills you guys passed that first year. Um, and it said, it named off the n- names of the people behind Secretary Clinton, and it's a, and an unidentified man <laughs> and that's <laughs> that is still, so perfect. and this sort of epitomizes is- he takes it to an extreme, I will say, but it epitomizes the staffer, the guy who's brilliant, who has who's got the strategy for getting something done, who can go in and negotiate the strategy if you need him to, opposite you know the majority leader or whoever it is, but also who can be in a meeting and blend into the wall you don't yes. even know he's in there that's right you know so he's an example of that your colleague um sean Mars is an example of that you're an example of that dan turton you know all of you guys really i think to me epitomized what a good staffer really does you're you're you can see around corners you're thinking you you learn to think like the um the members of congress do you know sean marr i'll never forget We were in a meeting one time and I, um, that the president was in with other leaders, including Republicans. And after the meeting, I was angry about it and said something unpleasant about a particular Republican member. And Sean set me down. This was just the two of us, by the way. It wasn't to a large crowd. He said, well, what you need to understand about him, Nancy Ann, is that um, I thought he had been disrespectful to the president. So what you need to understand is he can be hard of hearing. And so when he's in a meeting like that, sometimes he's uncomfortable and he doesn't talk very much. So it it may not have been being disrespectful to the president. He may have been having trouble hearing. And so I'm going to check in with his staffer after this and see how he was feeling about it. And I felt like about that big because that's the, you know, that's a piece of this role of being a staffer is having the empathy. Um, Truly. It's not about you. It's about what are you trying to get done for your principal?
0: That's right.
1: And figuring out how best to do it. And Sean had the empathy and the EQ. Yeah. The emotional intelligence to figure that out. And I was just coming out. I'm angry at him.
0: No. Well, uh, I can, I can tell you, I, I, I've never worked with with someone who has the an eq an eq like yours. You truly are. We would go to different meetings, not just one at a time, and you would listen, uh, be constructive. You're impossible not to like. Uh, even members who wanted to yell at the healthcare <laughs> czar found that they couldn't because you were just too constructive and open minded and and creative in your thinking and you know, uh, empathetic and likable. Um, So you were a, it's already been written, it's not for me to say, but you were a central part of that law and so much more in your career. Um, I am really honored uh, to have you as my guest today. And so Nancy Ann, thank you so much for spending time with us.
1: The pleasure was mine. Thank you.
0: Okay, everyone, I hear the gavel pounding this meeting to a close, which means this episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at Staffershow.com and check out Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn.